Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Middle American. I'm your host, Brian Grosier, and we are continuing our series of interviewing candidates as they gear up for the primary. We have early voting going on, and primary day itself is March 5th. And so the next candidate that has joined the podcast is Josh McConkie. He is running for U.S. House, uh, District 13, and he loaded district. We just talked with uh, Kenny last week and we've got a couple others coming up, but this is a loaded district, Josh. You got a whole bunch of people you're running against. Yeah, this is a super packed primary. This will probably be one of the more exciting races in the in the uh, entire state. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to interviewing you in it because it's it this is the point of it, right? Is that when you show up to the ballot and you see all those names how do you differentiate? You see the signs and everything else, but this is an opportunity to kind of differentiate yourself. So welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You've got a, a unique background for a candidate you know, from what I've seen in the past when I've looked at uh, folks' background before I interviewed them, but you've got a, a pretty unique one. So go ahead and walk, uh, walk me through that. Where do you come from in terms of running for this office? So yeah, I guess first off, I grew up in a really small town. In, in rural western Nebraska, a uh, very rural area. My dad was a railroader. My grandfather was a railroader. My great grandfather was a railroader. So I was the first Makaki in the entire history to go to college. Wow. So really had to kind of work things, um, uh, you know, from 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 small town where they have more cows than people, and and really, um, you know, busted my tail in school so I could provide for my family and. You know, I have a lot of respect for those blue collar workers that found out railroad jobs. I just, uh, that, I was looking for more. And so with the military and, and medical school, uh, I've got to do some, some pretty unique things. I went to Shatter State College, really small school in Western Nebraska. I went to medical school at, uh, the University of Nebraska in Omaha and then did residency in emergency medicine. So, you know, like trauma, emergency, you know, heart, heart attacks and strokes and, and those types of things. More of an adrenaline junkie and now that, that landed me naturally in the military. So I joined up with the Army National Guard and joined in 2000 where things were supposed to be um, doing medical missions in like Central and South America. This was in 2000. And then, of course, 9-11 hit after that, and so everything changed. And my 22 years of service here, I still serve actively as a commander in the Air Force Reserves, but we've been at war the majority of my entire career. So uh, between that, you know, some combat deployments, working as an emergency physician, and uh, you know, in academics as a Duke professor, you know, here in North Carolina, I've got to do some some fun things, I suppose. I've been very blessed. Well, thank you for your service. I know I speak on behalf of everyone for that. Uh, you said assistant professor over at Duke. What are you teaching? In the emergency department. So teaching medical students, residents, uh, physician assistant students. And we had dual faculty appointments at the VA hospital in Durham. So working between Duke and the Durham VA, you know, get to work with a lot of individuals and the education. I really enjoyed a lot of that. But coming from Nebraska, you've now ingrained yourself in the Duke, North Carolina, NC State. Well, absolutely. As a attending at Duke University, uh, the only way I could get to basketball games, you know, Cameron Indoor was to work the games. So I'm an EMS fellowship director as well. Like EMS is emergency medical services. So, you know, you work with fire departments, uh, law enforcement, and then I work with special operations, you know, combat search and rescue, pararescue on the military side with that uh, fellowship as well. But I could work the games with my fellow paramedics, you know, taking care of the, the students that maybe drink too much or the 
nine-year-old fan who has some chest pain during uh, some pretty crazy events. Right. And you know, we got to meet Coach K, and well, I can tell you, he is uh, an amazing leader. There's no doubt about that. Now, one of the things that you did mention in that long bit of the background is anything dealing with politics. So what encouraged you at this point to throw your name into the political race? Yeah, that's something I suppose that sets me apart and I'm quite proud of not being a career politician. I'm a doctor, I'm a commander, I'm a colonel in the Air Force. And what we see in Washington right now, there's a, a lot of dysfunction. I feel that there's a, a leadership vacuum as well. And that's something that I'm hoping to fill and bring some of that common sense and leadership to Washington, D.C. I'm up at Washington right now as a commander at Andrews Air Force Base. And when you talk about the swamp in Washington, D.C., you talk about that dysfunction, things don't work. Uh, I'm so sick of career politicians just paying the lip service and doing nothing about it. For me personally, this is uh, an opportunity to get there and make an impact and bring change to not only Washington, D.C., but a better North Carolina. And your position in particular, the one that you're seeking to obtain here in November, is one that when you talk about career politicians, I think this is one of those ones that a lot of people point to, right? Where you have a rep position that is every two years, and it seems like reps are running a perpetual campaign. I was at the Western Wake um, dinner last night where a number of candidates spoke, and one of the things that a number of people were talking about were term limits. Is and, and a couple of candidates kind of brought that up in interviews too. Is that something that realistically can be done? And is it something that should be done to prevent career politicians from taking place? Two very different questions. Should it be done? Yes. Uh, I was probably the first in this race. I I was the first in this race. I declared back in end of February of 2023 when it was Wiley Nickel. You know, this was still a swing district at that point before having redistricting and had signed the, the, the term limits pledge quite passionate about that. I think that's probably what leads to the to the swamp that's in D.C. is career politicians. Joe Biden has been in Washington, D.C. for 50 years. It's, uh, boy, now, is it being realistic? I think so. Uh, I'm going to try. You know, you have to convince the other career politicians that have been there for decades. You know, me being a, a you know, would be a freshman congressman, I'm not going to have a lot of pull, but I certainly have a lot of passion. And it is be something that I'll be talking about in, uh, in the media, in D.C., and with constituents. So uh, I'm going there with every intention of getting term limits. Now, what part of your background do you feel like enables you to be a U.S. representative here in North Carolina, taking the concerns of the constituents to Washington, D.C. Yeah. When you see 14 people on this primary ballot, you look for what separates you. So with 22 years of military service, leadership, combat tested, led men and women in combat, I've carried body bags off of battlefields in Iraq as a Duke professor, you know, leading students, um, you know, fellow attendings, running, you know, traumas and codes. I make life and death decisions every single day. That's that's my that's my day job, and that leadership matters. So, if somebody wants to, we're going to go into just a minute here, go into the issues and kind of your platform and the things that you'll be facing on the campaign trail, and if you eventually get to the office, once you sit in office, the issues you'll be facing there. But 
looking at your website, there are a number of issues that we'll go over, but how do people find your website? What is the, if they're looking more up about you, where can they go? Yeah, joshmcconkey.com and McConkey is M-C-C-O-N-K-E-Y. And are you on social media as well? Yeah, we have Facebook, we've got Twitter slash X. Um, there's a, a YouTube page, Josh McConkey for Congress. There's Instagram, I think it's Josh McConkey, MD, and Truth Social as well. So we, we've covered the uh, wide array of uh, social networking. So let's get to it. Let's get to the meat. Uh, let's go to your website and look at the issues that are listed there. Number one on the list is the economy. And I think that that is important because I think that's the number one issue. I think that people could talk about a lot of other things, but at the end of the day, people often vote with the pocketbook. And if they're struggling to make ends meet at the grocery store, or if they're struggling to you know, make student loan payments or mortgage payments or whatever it may be, they're going to look for a change if they're struggling. If they're okay. People tend to, you know, go with the status quo, but that seems to always be the issue is the economy. So what do you see? Twofold question. What do you see as the biggest issue impacted the economy right now? What would you do as a rep to address it? So, you know, we've made this as easy and simple as possible. Every time I get out and speak, I talk about the three S's. So this all boils down to security, safety, and service. And that number one component, when you talk security, we talk economic security. So when you talk about energy independence, you know, those are some very big issues. Uh, government regulation and the gross spending in Washington that you see, you have to rein in the spending. There isn't a single American out there that doesn't have to balance their pocketbook when they go writing checks for money they don't have, those checks bounce. It shouldn't be any different for our federal government. So you have to rein in the completely uncontrolled spending. We're $34 trillion in debt. When I started this race, I think it was 32. So in the time in the last year, we've it's been two or three trillion more in debt. Um, when you're trying to write off student loans, you know, just just billions of dollars of just gross spending, uh, the spending in Ukraine. So this unchecked, unbridled spending without having the 12 appropriation bills that were supposed to be there, that congressionally mandated, now they just do these omnibus spending bills. They throw everything together and just nobody can do that. It's, it's, it's unsustainable. And it seems to be something that's been happening under both parties' leadership, right? Whether Trump is in the White House, whether Biden's in the White House, whether Pelosi is the head of Congress, whether McConnell's the head of Congress, you know, whatever it may be, it seems like this just keeps happening. It's been happening for 20 years in terms of not having a budget, certainly not having a balanced budget or a zero-big budget. How do we go about fixing it? It's, it? I think everybody can identify it as a problem, but how do we get these folks on board to... You know, as you said, stop the omnibus and actually let's put together a budget, just like every one of us in America has to. We have to budget for our own households. How do we owners to do it? So that's why you've seen such a rise in the Freedom Caucus. So those that are more economically minded and balancing that budget and trying to bring control to that unchecked spending, that's why they've they've been able to leverage that power. And you see what happened uh, in uh, last fall. You know, we we lost the the speakership. You know, when uh, McCarthy was, was uh, essentially fired as Speaker of the House, we have to we have to control that budget, period. And do you think it's something that congressmen will actually be willing to do in terms of the, the, the issue that comes up every cycle is 
oh, you're going to shut down the government, right? And you're going to not be able to pay for uh, uh, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all these government-funded programs. If you shut down the government, you're not going to be able to make these payments. And that's what you see on the news stories. And then they blame the folks that, you know, have your position. They say, no, we need to be responsible and balance the budget. You guys get blamed for shutting the government down and not letting the checks go about. How do we break that cycle, you know, the fear of being blamed for shutting the government down to achieve the end of actually getting a budget. I will not pass the buck. If not now, when? That's a question that they have not answered for over a decade in this country. I have three children. I am not going to pass this buck to my children. We will address this. It's got to be now. One of the big issues, you live in an area here in North Carolina that has seen explosive growth, right? And a lot of building, a lot of families coming in here, uh, young families coming in here. When I moved here 20 years ago, I didn't have any kids. Um, but then I was able to, you know, my first starter home I built in 2005 for at $500 down. And it was a $140,000, 1800 square foot home. I mean, it's just not something you would see here anymore. It's certainly not the $500, but the price point as well. But my question is, I ask this a lot to uh, the folks that were running for town council uh, in Holly Springs last year. And it may be more of a local issue, but it's certainly something that can be addressed at the federal level as well, is affordability. You know, how do we make things more affordable for Americans, whether it's at the grocery store uh, in terms of buying items or simply being able to buy a house, right? Where it's really hard for a family of two young kids and one kid that's just trying to start out to buy a home because of the interest rates, because of the skyrocketing prices and everything else. We make the American dream achieve. So when you talk the economy and you talk these local politics, all politics are local, that is the number one issue is affordability. When you can't go to the grocery store and, and buy a carton of eggs, when you had this, some supply chain issue six months ago for less than like, it was like six or seven dollars for, for a dozen eggs, it was insane. When you put gas in your vehicle, when you're making house payments. So right now in North Carolina, the biggest issues that we're dealing with is you're getting hit on all three sides. The interest rates are going up, house prices are through the roof, and now your insurance costs are going up on top of property tax. So I guess it's fourfold. So if you're if it's not the interest rate, it's the property taxes. If it's not property taxes, it's the cost of the house. Inflation is just crushing so many aspects of American life right now. I feel that as well. I've got a wife and three children. It's not sustainable. You have to have more sustained growth. The economic policies that we've had from this current administration have destroyed the economy. I'm 46 years old. This is the worst inflation I've seen since I've been alive. How do we, you mentioned like gas prices, one of the things in North Carolina and these coastal um, states, you know, you get a lot of controversy when it comes to energy and, mm -hmm. you know, utilizing our own energy resources as opposed to looking overseas uh, for that, whether it be natural gas, whether it be oil. My Back in my own state of Michigan, seen some controversy recently with Biden addressing the natural gas and, and, and uh, limiting uh, the uh, availability of it there. Um, here in North Carolina, is there a way that we can capitalize our own resources to help North Carolinians when it comes to energy costs? Because that's something that's been going up for us as well. You look at your heating, 
you look at your gas bills, you look at all those energy bills, they just seem to keep going up exponentially, especially over the past five years. Yeah, that's I could I can answer that with a question. I want to ask the Biden administration, why are we supporting jobs in Venezuela? Why are we supporting jobs in the Middle East? You know, why did we let Europe rely on Russia for a natural gas pipeline? We did not see these issues under Trump. We had energy independence. We need to employ Americans right here. It's a national security issue for me. So when you are spending all that money, you're supporting jobs in other countries, buying their oil, their energy, you're, you're, you're hurting America. So if you cannot be, you cannot have yourself reliant on other people for those types of energy resources. We saw how badly that impacted Europe. We need to be energy independent. It's a good segue to the second topic on your website, which is national security. Broad topic. You can talk about a variety of things on there, but why, why do you have that on your website? What's your biggest concern when it comes to national security? So act as an, as an active military commander, I command 120 men and women in the United States Air Force right now. Um, I can tell you that we spend every second of every day preparing for threats against this nation. The number one threat right now is China. I spent, so March of last year, we had a military exercise in the Pacific Northwest. A U.S. Transportation Command, it was called Ultimate Caduceus. So this exercise is where you put together Department of Defense, VA healthcare system, civilian healthcare system, and we had a large exercise on what we would do with all the casualties from an exercise in the Pacific. Uh, we haven't had that level of uh, an engagement since World War II. It has, it's, it's been decades and decades since Americans have actually had to go through an event that's going to impact their daily lives. And so we did that huge exercise out at uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord. And we were out there for two weeks. It was an amazing exercise. We did an interview. I did an interview with NBC. Uh, there was big national news coverage. And we're clearly there to thwart Chinese aggression. I don't think there's any question about that. There's not a military um, leader or civilian leader that doesn't feel that China is our biggest threat when you really look at things. The night before my interview, I got sat down by the, the media and some members of the administration. They gave me four pages of what the ground ruled were and things I could not say. I could not say the word China on national TV, which mm -hmm. is a joke. That is an absolute joke. The very first question the NBC anchor asks, is this exercise in response to Chinese aggression in Taiwan? And I, I'm telling you, if my, if, if, if my mind was exploding, I mean, I literally cannot say the word China. Okay, I direct orders for the administration. So the canned response, you know, this is an exercise that we do annually every year. And just this year, it happens to be in the Pacific Northwest. I felt like this administration is more concerned about hurting China's feelings than preparing this country for war. And, and that, that peace through strength is very real. When you talk about Trump's foreign policy, uh, I don't think the majority of Americans feel like Ukraine would have been invaded, like China would be pushing the envelope so much with all the exercises they're doing in Taiwan if Trump was still in power. You have the peace through strength. Uh, I've been in the military for 22 years. I served in the Middle East. I've seen horrific, terrible things. And there are just people that wish America ill will. 
They will murder your babies while you sleep. They will slit your throat at any second. The world is not a happy, shiny place, okay? Um, if you do not show these bullies what will happen, they're going to completely take advantage of you. When they sense weakness, that's why Ukraine was invaded. That's why Hamas took that opportunity on October 7th and, and murdered almost 1,300 Israelis. This administration is weak and... Uh, I'm trying to reserve the things that as an active military commander, I'm telling you, it is very hard to watch. China specifically, it just seems like it's so, we're so intermeshed with that country. Uh, um, you know, you saw it in the debates where there were questions about their involvement in our universities. You saw it in their involvement in our land, in terms of buying up land. You saw it involving our technology, uh, in terms of TikTok and other apps that our kids utilize. And of course, with our business, in terms of all the business that's done between America and China and in that regard. So we're so interwoven with that. You talk about peace through strength from a you know, physical sense in terms of invasion and protection, again, that type of thing. How do we deal with all those other factors, too, that are so intertangled? Economic policy as well. When you look at, you know, not ready to segue quite yet, but when you talk immigration, when you talk uh, like these foreign policies, the, the weakness in this administration is it's 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 so hard to watch you know trying trying to keep your mouth shut as, as, as a military commander but as a civilian now running for u.s congress there's there, there's a lot of things that you can talk about um yeah i guess you can give me a specific question i i can talk for hours on that one well i guess uh, we'll talk about a couple of the things that came up in the in the presidential debates because they, there are national issues so there seems to be a push uh to get uh, China out of our universities and out of preventing them from buying up land. I think a lot of people don't even know that that exists. That the Chinese government is buying up land here in the United States. Is that, you know, uh, from your military expertise and your knowledge of China and other countries in general, but we're talking China specifically, it should Americans be concerned about that? They should be very concerned. Where I grew up in rural Nebraska, it's very sparsely populated. There's more cows than people. Um, I had, this is a open source, so there's no classified information. I certainly am not talking about anything classified at all. But Viero Wireless is a carrier out there in rural western Nebraska. There's just not a lot of people, not great coverage from Sprint and Verizon and the big carriers. Over the past 10 years, the Chinese um, were uh, basically giving all the equipment to Viero Wireless at, at very, very minimal cost. For a small company that, okay, this is great. We can get all this equipment off the Chinese for, um, you know, boy, they're really helping us out here. And then come to find out the Chinese were using, uh, actually having like cameras and technology that was spying on the movement of our uh, ballistic missiles programs that are out there in Western Nebraska. So where I grew up, I mean, you could drive however many miles between Alliance down to Sydney or Kimball, and you try to drive to Denver and you see missile silos all over the place. So the Chinese were actually tracking our movements and the maintenance schedules for our ballistic missile program using the the, the technology that they had sold to uh, Viero. And then you look at the land that they're buying around these areas as well. It is extremely concerning. And for me, this is so common sense why would you let your enemy, your adversary, buy your land? Let alone buying land near military facilities and extremely sensitive nuclear missile technology. This is mind-boggling. 
So that needs to be addressed immediately. And then you talk about the universities, the, 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 the intellectual property um, theft that is going on. So the universities, uh, when you talk about the, the wokeness that is really encroached into our university system on so many different levels, but the universities are just looking for cheap grad students. So instead of taking well-qualified American graduates or even other foreign graduates, they are being flooded by the Chinese because the Chinese government is literally sending them over there and letting them have their work for free. So I, I can tell you countless stories as a professor, not specifically at Duke University, but with other people in education, other professors who have caught Chinese students red-handed, just flat out taking photos of things that they shouldn't be doing. I mean, just straight up open espionage, stealing uh, secrets, government secrets, um, weather-related, you know, things. Uh, I, had, I had a friend that was uh, is, is now a professor, but he got his PhD as in the University of Central Florida. Um, there's some big NASA contracts. I'm telling you, it is it is wide open. They are not hiding a thing. So what do we do to address, kick them out? Like, how do we address it? It, it is no different how you would address that with, um, you know, expelling diplomats. Like, listen, uh, you're clearly here spying for China and stealing our intellectual property. Here's your ticket home. This it's not me. That should be common sense. They should be happening a lot. And this administration is so concerned about upsetting China. I literally cannot say China on national TV and news there. It blows my mind. Well, you can say it here. I can say it here. <laughs> Absolutely. So this uh, is is a good topic because it also addresses something that you just alluded to a minute ago in immigration, right? So if there's a second major topic right now, I think in the national campaign, the economy being one, immigration seems to be number two. And not just from China, but you're talking, you know, all over the world, what's happening at our southern border, what's happening at our northern border in terms of being able to access the United States. So I'm going to ask you two parts of immigration. The first part is going to address people coming here in the first place. How do we address those issues? The second part that I'll talk about after that is what do we do with all the people that are already here? Okay. So I'll shelve that for now. We'll get to the first part in terms of the people that are coming here, whether it's the Southern border, whether it's the Northern border, Whatever it may be, I don't think there's any debate or any dis real debate or real dispute that we are a sieve on, on both borders, right? And we don't really much control at all in what is happening. Well, question, I guess it'll be fit. I guess when you say that, but the northern borders is clearly much more secure. The Canadians do an incredible job with their immigration. There's not people just rolling in there from all over Central and South America. It's You, you physically have to have a visa to get into uh, you know, Canada, which is what needs to happen in the United States as well. So the southern border is clearly the problem. And that's a fair point to be had right there. So what do we do with, let's focus on that southern border. I had an episode where I talked about Eagle Pass. I talked about the constitutional crisis going on there between Governor Abbott and the Biden administration in terms of what's happening and how states can feel that their hands are tied based off of what the federal government is doing. What can we do? What should, better question, what should we be doing with the southern so first, you really have to draw in, in that distinction between immigration and illegal, illegal immigration, because that's what the left wants to paint everything is. This, all, this is just all immigration. We need immigrants. No, completely separate issues. So my wife is an immigrant family. Okay. Her parents came from Cuba. 
legally. Her, her grandfather was a physician. They moved him out to Missouri. All right, he practiced in rural Missouri to to earn his keep before they can move back to Miami. Your client and Cuba. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So America needs immigration. We don't have an immigration problem. We have an illegal immigration problem. You cannot have illegal immigration. It's not the same thing as immigration at all. It's a completely separate issue. Without a secure border, you do not have national security. That's a fact. This is not this is not a, a partisan issue. I, I don't know how you argue the other side of that, but if you can't control who's coming in and out of your country, you de facto do not have national security. Back in November and December, where you saw 160, 170 people from the terror watch list coming into our country, that were caught. How many were not caught? Iranian, Chinese. I mean, everyone in the country knows you can just sneak right across the border of Mexico and get into the United States. That should put, and, and instill fear into Americans, that makes me lay awake at night as a military commander who gets secured classified national, you know, classified night briefings on these issues. I'm telling you, it is extremely concerning. So how do we secure it? What is the best you've heard Trump campaign about building the wall and the allegations from DeSantis that he never actually finished it? You heard uh, DeSantis talk about sending the National Guard and defending it momentarily in that regard. How do we secure, how do we adequately secure this southern border? Absolutely. There are probably four or five really distinct things that need to be done on that. I've got some some articles out on uh, uh, town, townhall.com. That townhall.com uh, had an editorial that came out on that. It's a it's a very complex issue, but when you really put it down to just like literally four things, the, the physical barriers work. So in certain areas, like it, I think it would, it'd be very difficult to build like the Great Wall of China across like the U.S.-Mexico border, okay? But there are areas where those barriers clearly work. When you put up walls, when you put up the razor wire, you look at the difference at Eagle Pass now that Texas has actually stepped up in the absence of the Biden administration doing anything to secure the border. It works, you know? Um, so we talk physical barriers. You talk manpower. So whether that's, you know, increasing, you know, the funding for border security or you activate National Guardsmen. I served with the uh, Texas National Guard. I was, I deployed with them to Iraq in 2007, all right? This is the 36th Infantry Division. Um, it's got the, the, the blue patch with the T on it, if you're, if you're a military guy. But I served with those guys in Iraq in 2007. Uh, after coming back and serving with Combat Search and Rescue as, an, as a medical director and a flight surgeon, um, I actually vlogged my flight time in Austin, Texas, flying with the pilots that do the border security. And so you do several hours um, of, uh, of, of pre-flight briefings and things like that when you're in flight time. So we would just sit there and I would just pick these guys' brains and the stories that they would tell you for their border security missions are just unbelievable. That border is completely out of control. So like number one, physical barriers. Two, increasing the funding, leveraging the National Guard if you need to. And then you talk about just technology. We've got drone technology. We've got monitoring technology. There are, this is America. When there is a need, like Private individuals will step up and develop technology. I mean, that technology was there. It was developed under the Trump administration, and there, uh, Biden killed it all. Just shut it all down, killed it all. The border materials that were there that were being used in both sections of that wall, they just they they sold it at firehouse sales for one or two cents on the dollar, literally. And then private companies were buying that, turning it on, and selling it back back on on the market, making tremendous amounts of money selling our the, the materials that were supposed to be building the wall. 
Now, you started the discussion by talking about the distinction between immigration and illegal immigration. One of the issues that we've seen reported on is kind of a quasi that is this whole asylum refugee status where it's there for a reason, right? You protect true asylum seekers and true refugee seekers, but it's being abused and it's clearly being abused in terms of the loose definition of asylum, the loose definition of refugee. And then how we're even processing them, right? Where they get their status initially and then come back in 2030 or 2031 for your hearing and we'll well, hopefully find you a winner. So how do we fix this? So, so some multiple issues. So they have, the Biden administration has literally incentivized people to come here illegally. You know, Title 42 expiring, remain in Mexico, change that policy, institute a more catch and release, um, stop border wall construction. So it, it even if they're saying Mayorkas, like, oh, we're clearly working on border security in, by the administration, they're they're physically and outwardly showing everyone that they don't care in the slightest and they're incentivizing you to come. On top of giving them the the the, the visa cards and the thousand dollar debit cards, you know, a month. I mean, they're they're physically incentivizing people to come. Um and, and I liken this to what I do in the emergency department every day with opioid seekers. Okay. Don't feed the bears. Don't feed the bears. The bears don't come when you don't feed them. Okay. This isn't rocket science. Have them come here legally. If it's so bad in your country, come through the turnstile. You might have to wait in line a little bit, but if you're hanging out in Mexico, wherever you need to be to have your family safe, we, I think the left really pushes on, on the, the, the border security issue as, oh, it's just so inhumane. Why are you putting up border walls and why are you putting up razor wire? I don't have my kids run through razor wire. Like, what are you doing? Wait in line. Come through the entrance. Come to the turnstile. We're, we're happily welcome you if you come here legally. You know, we have legal immigration. You cannot have illegal immigration. I This one blows me away. I don't understand it. The people that put arguments in for illegal immigration, why have the laws if you're not going to uphold them? If you don't have a secure border, you don't have national security. This is... I, th I think it's very simple to address, but this is obviously a complex issue. Let's go to the second aspect of it, the one that I shelved a minute ago and talk about the folks that are here, the millions of illegal immigrants that are here. We've you know, had discussions about them for years, uh, aspects of it where when the Obama administration was talking about dreamers and it came up in DACA and all this on other programs. What do we, is, is there a universal policy? Some, some Republicans will say deport them all. You know, if you're illegal, deport every one of you and then come back legally. Other ones will have a little bit of a caveat and say, well, if you're here on a visa and your kid, uh, you know, turns 18 and they're not, you know, kind of in a quasi status, we need to expedite the process for giving them a visa or being able to nationalize them or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. What do we do with the millions and millions of illegal immigrants that are here and may have been here for 15, 20 years, but they're here. If you came illegally, you have to leave. It's no different anywhere on planet Earth. I have, I have worked in Australia. I have worked in the Middle East. I have worked in New Zealand. I had to have a work permit to be there. There's not many countries. There's really no other country on the planet that even entertains the idea of illegal immigration. No one else on the planet does that. Australia, when they have immigrants that try to come illegally into Australia, they've got a big island like, like, like north of, uh, like up in the Coral Sea area where they just throw people for decades and they just languish. All right. 
you cannot enter the country illegally. It was illegal 10 years ago. It's illegal today. The Obama administration, they had, uh, there were some amnesty programs that they had. They have had every, uh, the people that have been here for long periods of time, there has been ample opportunity for you to capitalize on some of these, try to get yourself legit, legal, applying for visas, green cards. If you came here illegally, you are here illegally, period. You have to go home, go get back in line. Like We are a nation of laws. It's illegal to murder people. Wow. But you only killed one person. You promised not to do it again. It's, it's fine, mate. We have laws for a reason. If you came here illegally, you, you, have, you have to do it legally. The more you, if you allow that to continue, that just incentivizes the negative behavior. Don't feed the bears. What about like, and this is always pointed to as an issue as to why we need to deal with it. And they look back at what Ronald Reagan tried to do in the 80s. You know, Reagan was like, give me a fence and we'll legalize, you know, it's a quid pro quo. You give me a fence and we'll legalize the folks that are here or, you know, do whatever, give an amnesty, whatever it was at the time. What happened was they gave them that, they gave them the legalization or the citizenship or the amnesty, but they never gave them that fence, right? And so we're still seeing this 40, 30, 40 years later, the same debate, right? In terms of give you a wall, give me, you know, whatever. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. These are the issues. I will not pass the buck any further. The buck stops right here. I am going to Congress to solve these issues. I don't particularly want to be in Washington, D.C., let's be honest. It is a cesspool. I cannot stand the ridiculous, the, the, the histrionics. Washington, D.C. is crazy. I work in these issues as a military commander right now. I worked on the Air Force Association Council, um, you know, working on uh, legislation for the National Defense Appropriations Act. Um, I am there because I need to be there because I've seen generations of leaders. I have seen decades of people doing exactly that, passing the buck, whatever is more politically expedient. If I am not there in Washington, D.C. getting this done, I'm going to go back to being a doctor. I'm not a politician. I do not particularly want to be in Washington, D.C. I want to be here with my family. But right now I am needed in D.C. because things are clearly not getting done. You talked about the use of the bear analogy and now the feeding the bear. When you mentioned that, you talked about your experience with patients coming in and dealing with opioid addiction, and that is listed as number three on your website in terms of issues you'd like to address. That is the opioid crisis. You've had first-hand experience, especially dealing with the type of work that you do. You see this on a regular basis, I imagine. What are you seeing? How significant is this? Because a lot of people may be like, look, out of sight, out of mind. I don't know anybody that's addicted to opioids or anything. It's not that big of a deal. How big of a deal is it? And what are you seeing in your little work? So as an emergency physician who's practiced medicine for 20 years, I have seen a huge increase in just the last two to three years of opiate overdoses and specifically fentanyl. There is a direct correlation of that and that porous southern border. It comes from lots of different areas, but a large majority of that is coming from a southern border. Uh, the drug cartels, I mean, the drug issue... It, We've had drug problems in this country for, for decades and decades. You talk about some, some of the Reagan policies that was incredibly successful. But when you're the doctor that walks into that room and you work on a child or a teenager and you spend 20 minutes or half an hour or 45 minutes trying to save a life and you're not successful, and you walk into that family and you have to tell them that their son or daughter have died, it is brutal. 
It is by far the worst part of my job. Um, it's probably hard to get, not get a little emotional when you talk about it, but I'm the one that watches these children die. I cannot watch that anymore. We have to secure this boy. It's a, it's a huge problem. There are over 42%, nearly half of every single American in this country. This was a CNN, CNN article just a couple of days ago. Almost half of this country, every, every single American in this country knows someone who has died of an overdose. If that doesn't shock you, if the fact that we're killing 120,000 Americans a year doesn't shock you, I don't know what to tell you because this is a problem. This is literally the reason that I'm running. Do we have a problem within your own profession as well in terms of opioid prescriptions, narcotics? And the reason I say that, I we were talking, you know, before we came on the air, I was talking about my line of work, dealing with workers' comp, and I see folks that get hurt at work. And I see their medicals and it's like, as soon as the orthopedic is, you know, they maybe prescribe them something or whatever, and then they get into pain management and they'll be years in pain management, getting, you know, oxycodone, oxycot, some sort of narcotic, and they are just on it constantly. And you see that happening. You've seen the crisis of that in some of the Appalachian states, you know, whether it's West Virginia had a big issue with that in terms of folks going to pain clinics and getting the drugs and everything. Is that an issue too? Not just the illegal side of it, you know, getting, you know, having drugs and having them laced with fentanyl or anything like that, but the legal side of it as well, in terms of going to your medical provider and getting these narcotics and being those addicted to them. Those are linked. So you saw in the early 2000s, I literally wrote a book, Be the Weight Behind the Spear. There's an entire chapter where I talk about the opioid addiction in this country. I started medical school in 1999. I watched this epidemic from start to finish. So between the government instituting um, these, these pain score systems that they pushed, that so JCO, the accrediting organization for hospitals in America, started pushing pain as the fifth vital sign. It's a completely subjective scoring, all right? When you talk blood pressure, temperature, those are objective scores. Correct. Your number, the higher it is on that score, literally leads to a higher risk of death. Now, Things that I saw in Iraq, I've seen people get blown to pieces, losing multiple limbs, and their pain scale might be four to 10. They would ask me, hey, is my buddy okay? And uh, is, 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 is my genitalia there? Okay, that's what the guys ask when they get blown up. Is my dick still there? And is my buddy okay? All right, pain scale of four out of 10. Now, in, in America, your hangnail, your sprained ankle might be 10, or it might be 11, or it might be 15 out of 10. You know, I want some hydrocodone. So the government, when it instituted these ridiculous pain is the fifth vital sign programs, they started tying it to patient satisfaction scores. And then the satisfaction scores were tied to physician reimbursement and bonus structures. So you are literally giving patients and you were promoting patients and you were actually forcing physicians to give opiates. Um, and this is what I tell my residents. When you give an, a narcotic, you are giving a patient a medication that increases their risk of death for a non-life-threatening condition. Pain is not deadly. Pain is terrible. If you have a sprained ankle, I'm sorry, the Motrin is going to have to be enough. When you take that step on that sprained ankle, that's your body telling you not to do that, okay? You tore some ligaments, you got to let those ligaments heal. If you have terminal cancer, that's a different story, okay? No one needs to suffer with terminal cancer. But the difference between pain and terminal cancer and the pain with your sprained ankle is very, very different. But the American healthcare system has 
basically forced physicians and put them in a position. I know people have been fired from jobs for not having satisfaction scores high enough. And for me as a physician, they call me the Naperson Nazi. All right. I don't give narcotics. I don't believe them. I sit down and I talk with patients. I'll talk five minutes. I'll talk 10 minutes. I'll talk 20 minutes until they are so sick of talking to me that they're like, oh my God, forget it. I don't want it anymore. Because I have seen so many people die on my watches that I wear on my wrist, a time of death, 158. I've done that hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, I refuse to feed into that. Um, early on in the early 2000s, I got a lot of crap from hospital administrators. I literally had one of my medical directors sit me down when I was a, I was a rookie. I was a first year attending straight out of residency and he sat me down. Uh, his name is Jeff. I won't use his last name, but if I ever see him in the back in a dark alley someday, I swear to God. So this guy sat me down and he asked me to write more opiate prescriptions. He said, you know, Josh, you know, when I was young, I wanted to change the world too. And, uh, but they're only hurting themselves. So your satisfaction scores you know, are, just, are just lower because at this particular hospital, it was such a candy factory because of this director particularly, that if you don't give drug seekers drugs, take a wild guess what that satisfaction score is going to be. Right. Seriously, like you have got to be kidding me. But now you're going to be graded on that. And now your bonus structure is going to be tied into that as well. So you're actually going to lose money if you don't give this guy drugs. The, the, the seekers know that. The bears know that. Okay. Uh, my don't feed the bear policy was not very popular until about, about seven or eight years ago. And now I'm a good guy again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy seeing those pendulum swings, but there, there, there's so many, uh, hospital administrations, you know, doctors do have a role in that. They needed to stand up for their patients more. We've lost millions of, of Americans dying with opioids. I could talk about that. I've literally got a whole chapter in my book on it, but they, they, these are, these are definite problems, but this is a combination of government healthcare issues, hospital administrations, and physicians not having the guts to stand up for their patients. So you've got experience, you've got this background that most congressmen don't. And so with that experience, if you get to go to Washington, what could you do? Like, what, how do we address it? How would you address these issues that you, so, you bring you know, up? Yeah, number one, being a freshman congressman, you know, trying to find where you can leverage that experience. So I have uh, already met with the healthcare freedom uh, fund there in Washington, D.C. Uh, that is all the, the, the physician caucus, you know, in Washington, D.C. So they, they have endorsed me formally as Dr. Rowe and his, uh, you know, group of physicians. Uh, we're right here, Dr. Murphy in North Carolina, Dr. McCormick, 6th District in Georgia. Um, I've got a whole list on my desk here, actually, of the other individuals, but having their support and as a caucus together, you can influence that healthcare policy. You know, one guy alone, you're going to have a difficult time. Now you got 20 congressmen tied together with that experience. That's very, very powerful. When you get to DC, um, you very quickly realize that the vast majority of congressmen have absolutely no clue. I mean, the very, very basics about our healthcare system, uh, HMOs, managed organizations, like the, the healthcare lobbying uh, it is the congressmen themselves that don't have the healthcare experience have absolutely zero clue, zero, very, Healthcare liter literacy so low, it would shock you. Like they've never had to pay a premium or a copay. I mean, I, I don't know what type of healthcare policy they're on, but they're not dealing with the same stuff that you and I deal with as North Carolinians and Americans working with healthcare companies. So we have to have that experience in Congress. I was going to add, you, you, you brought up something that was in, I was just about to ask is that part and parcel with healthcare is the cost of it, right? In, in my line of work, if I'm hiring a paralegal, 
when I'm hiring a legal assistant, the number one issue that comes up in terms of whether I'm able to hire the person or not is not the quality of the job or whether or not they like the people there or anything else. Can they afford the healthcare, right? Or is it in their healthcare plan? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is, is it within that? Can they see their primary care provider or whatever it may be? But a lot of it has to do with the fact that it just costs so darn much, right? And it's, you know, I'll have a legal assistant that looks to, you know, make 40000 45000 a year and they can't do it. Because if they have their kids on their plan, all of a sudden, you know, half, if not more of their paycheck is going to healthcare. So you're in the industry, you see, you know, how these insurance companies operate and everything else. Why is healthcare so expensive and how can we address that? How can Congress address that to make it more affordable? A lot of people will point to Obamacare and say that that was the solution. A lot of people will point to single payer system and say, we should do that. We should be more like Canada or whatever. What is wrong with the United States system in terms of the costs right now, and how do we fix it? So, a lot wrapped in that question for sure. So, the single payer model—that's a government-run healthcare—is a complete disaster. I have worked in Australia. I have worked in New Zealand. I have worked in socialized healthcare systems, the tiered systems, the wait times, the. See, the, the issue in America will be then you want to have a single-payer healthcare system. You want to try to lower costs, but you're not going to address the tort reform and the liability issues. So you, you still want to sue your doctors all the time, but you don't want to pay anything for the healthcare. So the doctors just get squeezed right in the middle there. I don't think people understand how much those single healthcare payer systems and the government uh, regulations impact their cost of care. So I'm going to give you a great example. I owned part of a freestanding healthcare facility in Texas for a while as an emergency physician. Um, we literally could not even afford to accept Medicaid slash Medicare because the cost. So Medicaid and Medicare, the scam that they have running is they change their regulations literally daily. So there's thick books and packets that come out every day, every week, every single month to change the game on how they're going to reimburse their healthcare providers the facility and the doctor. So for you to make any money at all in accepting these government-run healthcare like policies like Medicare, Medicaid, state or federal, it was going to cost us well over, you have to hire one, two, or three individuals extra in your business, additional overhead to chase the tail for Medicare and Medicaid. You literally have to get hundreds of thousands of more dollars to not, to barely break even on something like that. And I'll give you the example of my, my cousin. So my cousin, Joe, is out in Boise, Idaho. His wife is an occupational therapist. She works with special needs children, um, uh, people with the, the developmental disabilities as an occupational therapist doing pool therapy, water therapy. She's an amazing practitioner. She's built a business out there. It's uh, she, She's expanded like, like multiple times now. And she's like probably, probably one of the better providers in that, in that niche for occupational health in Idaho. They change the rules every week or two so that they don't have to pay them. And they'll create another form that you have to fill out, but they won't tell you about it until you get audited six months later. So Joe and Nicole are working their tail off with, with, disadvantaged and, 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 and the handicapped children. All right. They're not making money just hand over fist here. So they got audited by Medicaid and they went back and found records from one or two years ago. They had changed some forms. So the issue came to be was the form that they were using for their physician referrals had changed, but they didn't tell them. 
But because they didn't have the right form two years ago, they went back and said, oh, well, we want all that money back that we paid you for those individuals. You owe us about two or $300,000. They don't have that money. They, they, they almost went bankrupt. So they had to hire an attorney spending more additional money that they didn't have to fight the Medicaid system. And Medicaid was doing it just to try to just recoup money. I mean, they, they, they clearly knew they were in the wrong. Long story short, they ended up only having to pay a fraction amount of that, but then paid a bunch of legal bills. So that's really the name of the game for government-run healthcare is how can we screw everyone and not pay for anything? It's If you put it in the most simplest terms, that's literally, they just want you chasing your tail. Oh, I read this EKG uh, two weeks ago. I got reimbursed you know, the, the, the pennies on this EKG, but there was a box right here that I didn't check that they didn't tell us about until you get audited six months later, and now you have to pay us back. So not only are they not paying you for that medical service, now you're actually supposed to give the government money back. So government-run healthcare is, is, is horrific. Americans will not stand for that. If you have gallbladder pain, say you're a 40-year-old female, and you have right upper quadrupane, and you know you have a gallbladder issue, and you need to have some surgery. I watched in Australia and New Zealand, these government-run healthcare systems, these people were waiting years for surgery, years. But if you have this insurance card, they'll walk you across the street the same day. That same surgeon will walk you across the street and take that surgery out the same day. But if you're on the government system, I saw people wait almost five years. I was flabbergasted. I would ask a colleague, this woman I saw when I was in, in Adelaide. I was at Flinders University as, as a professor there working. And I'm like, hey, man, this lady's been waiting. She says three years for her gallbladder surgery. And he said, yeah, no, no, it'll probably be about five or six. I'm like, as an American, that blows me away. That is so inappropriate. You saw how, you look at what we have for government healthcare right now, our VA healthcare system. I think everyone remembers the whole scam that the VA had going about 10 years ago, where their wait lists were getting so bad that Congress said, hey, you can't have anybody on a wait list over this amount of time. So all they did is they just kicked them off the wait list and kept right. a secret paper in their desk. Right. I mean, this is what your government healthcare were turned into. And the more government intervention you have, you think you're saving money? It's the exact opposite. You, you're hiring more staff to chase your tail, the government interventions, the regulations. As a doctor, I practiced before electronic health records. I actually used to sit down and talk with people. It was amazing. Now, I spend less than 30%, maybe less than a quarter. I am spending all of my time on front of a computer, checking boxes and toggles and switching and doing things to cover my tail so that I don't get audited by the federal government five years from now and then lose more money on the very pennies of money that I made to begin with. Government-run healthcare is a disaster, a complete disaster. So the opposite of government, there would be opening up co privatized competition. Right? Absolutely. The question, do things efficiently. The question being, though, should you be, should we open the borders as it relates to the healthcare? Like, should you be able to shop and say, I don't want Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. I want United Healthcare based out of Virginia or quarters out of Tennessee. It, would that make the system better? Absolutely. That would give, this, this is America. It's about, it's about capitalism. It's about competition. The more competition you have in that, um, so and right now the the lobbies that you see for these insurance companies are so strong and are so heavily involved in writing the legislation in Washington D.C. right now. They're basically covering their tails to create the loopholes for them to be able to do that without real and true competition. So, 
it is a very, very complex issue, but as someone who has practiced medicine for 20 years, um, boy, if you if you have a non-physician or a non-healthcare provider writing this laws, you are going to be screwed as an American every single time, I promise you. I'm going to take a hard right turn here for the last issue I want to talk to you about, but given your experience, I didn't want to not address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ukraine. Israel. You've seen this as part of the national debate in, in terms of the Republican debates and the presidential debates in terms of what uh, what should be our involvement. You have Mickey Haley saying that we need to be there to prevent China from moving into Taiwan and Putin moving into the Baltics and everything else. And then you have Vivek saying we shouldn't be involved at all. And then everything in between, mm-hmm. right? So given your experience, what is your opinion on what the United States should be doing? as it relates to Ukraine. And after that, I'll answer that Okay, yeah, it, it, was, it was a real simple one. So Ukraine, we have to have better accounting on that money. When, when you see how much money is being wasted, when you see some, some of the, the fraud that's going on, the, I think two or three weeks ago, $40 million just disappeared, unaccounted for, don't know where it went, didn't buy weapons, wasn't buying you know shells or ammunition. And, and I can speak from personal experience in Iraq. Uh, when I was there in 2007, about two years before I got there, so again, I was flying aviation, Army aviation. I was a flight surgeon, did medevac, did one air assault, all kinds of crazy stuff. But there were there were some some pilots telling me a story on a previous deployment they had been there, where early on in that in, the, in that conflict, you know, CIA and they were flying in pallets of money into this small town in Iraq. So the, the pilot was incredibly nervous about it because he's accountable. If that's on his aircraft, it's his problem and it's accountability. So they had pallets of, of like tens of millions of dollars, just money. Flew it to a location in the small town in Iraq. Nobody's there for the drop. The pilot's losing his mind. I'm going to get shot down. I'm, a, I'm an easy sitting target here. Get this money off my aircraft. This is not my problem. So you know what they do? Drop it. They hiked into town, called the cab driver. The cab driver recognizes a crazy opportunity, calls up some buddies with a dump truck and drove the dump truck out there and just grabbed tens of millions of dollars of cash. Not once, but it happened for a week or two where this, the money, who was it supposed to go to? I don't know, but this cab driver just retired. I shit you not. Can I say that on here? I swear to God, the cab driver picked up a buddy who had that dump truck and they just picked up dump trucks full of cash. That's crazy. That happens. If you don't have accountability, it's it's so bizarre. I'm telling you, those are real stories. You cannot have that. You have to have better accounting. I am all about supporting our NATO allies, okay? Um, I understand that whole joint security uh, for, for, for Europe and support our NATO allies. The fact is Ukraine is not a NATO ally, okay? I'm not saying we don't support Ukraine. There just has to be better accounting on that, and there just has to be a lot more uh, oversight than there is right now, and that is the job of Congress, and that is what I will do when I get there, but that is a fact. They are not a NATO country. I don't like Putin. I think he's a terrible guy. You know, I I, I want Ukraine to win that war. Let's do it with some better accounting. Okay. Now, you said Israel is, is an easy answer. Very not Israel. Uh, 100% uh, support Israel in that. We have had joint, um, we have cultural ties, uh, Judeo tradition, uh, Judeo Christian values. They are our number one security ally in the Middle East, having fought war there myself. Israel has been fighting for their life from the day of their inception. 
their, their neighbors have wanted to just destroy them and murder them. And every second of every day since their inception, they have every right to support themselves. Like they have my unequivocal support, period. In terms of, let's see, well, yeah, one more. We've got a little bit of time. One more uh, topic I wanted to address with you, just giving your background. And because I've asked this about some of the other candidates as well. You see, it's not the Dobbs decision, mm-hmm. you know, reverse Roe versus Wade. So the Supreme Court's already weighed in on abortion. You have had this come up in different states during elections. Ohio was the most recent one in the 2023 cycle where they put it to vote to, to the states in terms of what to do with it. Like, basic question is this. You, if you win, you're in Washington, D.C., you're part of the federal government. Should the feds be involved with the abortion issue, or should it be something that is left to the individual states? I thought Roe versus Wade was grossly inappropriate from the very beginning. Um, it is a state issue. You know, the, that uh, the Dobbs decision hit it head on. Leave it to the states. When you talk about I don't want the federal, to be honest, I don't want the federal government involved in my healthcare period. Okay. They don't know what they're doing. Um, they make crazy decisions. This, this is a constitutional republic. There are 50 states in this country. If you love super left policies, want to defund your police, have zero restrictions on abortion, go to California. There's a place for you. This is America. You have a choice. Nobody's forcing you to live anywhere. This is the United States of America. All right. If you want more conservative Christian values, there's some wonderful states out there. North Carolina being one of them. That's why I live here. You know, I choose to raise my kids here. I came out with the military and I've fallen in love with the place, and that's why I stay here. So that is a state issue. You've got the primary going on right now. Early voting is taking place through March 2nd, if I remember correctly, March 5th being actual primary day. The interesting thing with the primary, especially as it relates to North Carolina, is you have the Republicans obviously can come and vote, but you can also have what's labeled as unaffiliates here that can vote in the Republican. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they choose, choose, choose which ballot to choose which yeah. ballot, but they can vote, right? So, particularly in your race, you what, 14 total candidates yes. in that race, right? I mean, you're not going to win simply by securing the Republican base, right? It's going to be a mixture of base, moderates, unaffiliated, so separate yourself from the other thirteen. So not exactly. So with 14 people in this race, I think most people would bet uh, the more conservative, uh, that, that Christian vote, if you, if you, we can definitely win on that alone, period. So, you know, with us being the number, the first person to endorse Trump in this race, I was with his team in, in Ankeny, Iowa for the Iowa caucuses. 42 degrees below zero froze my tail off. But, you know, they did. That, yeah, yeah. So Trump pulls uh, the last one, the 63% early on. I think it's it's almost 70% now. I think those people that are going to be voting for Trump are going to be voting for us. And we, we could very much win with just that alone. But you're right. The undecideds have a big part to play more in the general election. Well, then they do. Like, then they do in our primary. That'd be the segue question. Let's say you have the, the support of the base. It gets you out of the primary. How do you manage your campaign then? Because I'll definitively say there's no way you win just with the base in a general election, right? You have to, the the unaffiliated are the largest political bloc Mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And the main thing with the unaffiliated is their hesitancy to necessarily, they may like Trump's policies, but the rhetoric and all of the things that come with Trump, they have hesitancy on. 
Right. And that has shown in it just showed on the weekend here in uh, South Carolina where they had the primary and Nikki Haley won the independence, I think it was about sixty two percent to thirty three percent, somewhere around there, about two thirds. How do you balance that? How do you balance that? Because we've seen that, we've seen a history of that in the elections of 2020, 2022, and now coming up in 2024. How do you balance securing that base, keeping that base going into November, but also attracting those moderates or those independents who may lean Republican or be Republican, but may have a hesitancy towards the leader on the ticket? So we're, we're actually in a, in a very blessed position in this district. Previously, when I entered this race, this was a swing district with Wiley Nickel. This is now an R plus 17 district, which personally, I feel this is a much more representative district. You know, the, the lawsuits in 2020, uh, you know, were in, for the 2022 election that the Democrats had filed, you know, to try to even things out, given a 7-7 split of the House, is not reflective of Carolina values. So, you know, this map is much more reflective of what this area of North Carolina is. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a kid from a rural area. You have very large rural areas from Caswell, Pearson, Granville County. You get all the way to, to Harnett, Lee, Johnston County, and, and then some, some more uh, suburban areas in just northern and southern Wake County. But this R plus 17 district, this is representative of what this, this region of North Carolina is outside of Raleigh, right? And so we... With R plus 17, uh, we, can, we, we can be true to form. We don't have to play any games. We don't have to be lobbying or catering to you know, those people sitting in the middle. I think our values, that when we talk about security, safety and service, economic security, border security, I think completely non-partisan issues of saving our children from the opiate crisis. You know, all the, all the kids that were killing here in North Carolina, we had uh, uh, an 18-year-old uh, die in Wake Forest just this last weekend, okay? This hits home. Those things are, are bipartisan issues. So I don't think we have to play any games. We just talk about our message and what we're about, and we will handle it when a general election. Um, now, in my line of work, uh, if I'm making an argument, giving a closing argument, whether it's for a brief, whether it's to the judge, whether it's to the jury, as to why they should support my position. So I'm going to give you here in these closing minutes your opportunity to give the listeners a closing argument, especially those in that district that you were talking about, District 13, as to why they should vote for you versus the 13 other candidates that they're going to see on that ballot. And they go. So the two things that I want them to remember. The first one is when you look at some of the other candidates in this race, it's the same thing. Same three different years. Nobody woke up this morning. I'm, I'm sure yourself included. And I, you are an attorney, right? That's right. But literally nobody woke up this morning and said, man, I wish we had more lawyers in Congress. All right. No, nobody says that. I mean, the, the majority of people I, I talk to, they just district lawyers. Period. Yeah. So like, nobody woke up and said, I want more attorneys in Congress. If you keep voting for the same people, you're going to get the same ridiculousness. It's it's same thing, different year. Okay. So that's the, the first thing. Second thing service matters. Leadership matters. When you look at the other candidates in this race, who has actually, I've served in combat. I have led men and women in combat. As an active military commander right now who has worked on NDAA, the National Defense Appropriations Act, and, and legislation in Congress, you know, consulting with members of Congress, trying to make life better for people in the military. The military is what brought me here in North Carolina. 
this is a very there's a huge part of the culture, um, the development, and just economically the impact for the military here in North Carolina. That service matters. 22 years of military service, 20 plus years in the trenches of America's emergency rooms. As a doctor, as an emergency doctor, I make life and death decisions every single day. People trust me with their lives. You want someone in Washington, D.C. that you can trust. You want somebody who's had that leadership, uh, not, not says they're going to do it, who has actually done it, which is why I think in this race, it's going to be pretty handily won by, especially in North Carolina, by Donald Trump. I don't want the person who's going to talk about, well, we need to secure the border and we need to change the economy. Like, I want someone who's done it already. I want actual experience. That is going to be what sets me apart. And, you know, 14 people in this race, just count six lines down on that ballot. Josh McConkie for Congress. And when they're looking, if they've listened to this, and I know you did it earlier, but if they've listened to this and they're like, you know what, I really like what he has to say, I want to learn more about him. Where can they find you? What's your campaign page and what's your social media? So, Absolutely. It's joshmcconkey.com. Very simple. On Facebook is Josh McConkie for Congress. On Twitter and X, it's McConkie007. I've had that one for many, many years. Uh, Instagram is Josh McConkie MD. And uh, what, are the other, what are the other ones? Truth Social, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Truth Social. That's just Josh McConkie for Congress. And then if people want to get a, a really good idea of what I'm about, I mean, check out my book. You know, yeah, what's the title of your book? Be the Weight Behind the Spear. That is my call to action for Americans to get engaged in their communities. We lost a lot during COVID, all right? We shut our kids out of schools. We shut out their ability to attend churches. They don't have the leadership skills. They don't have the coping skills. And I know I command these men and women, 18 to 25 years old, all right? We need coaches, teachers, volunteers, and family. That's the best resource that we have in this entire country is our people. All right. That is what sets us apart from China and from Russia. And the more people that get engaged in their community, whether that's getting involved in your church, maybe that's coaching T-ball, maybe that's just doing some other community service and volunteering. We need more Americans to engage in their community. You know, that's what being the weight behind the spear is all about. We can't all be the one kicking in the door and shooting Bin Laden in the face. All right. That's not what I do. I'm a doctor. I save lives. I don't take lives, but I take care of guys that do do those things. So be the weight behind the spear. And I think the more Americans that get involved in that, I think would be able to bring us together and get us to move. Dr. Colonel, I approve whatever the title may be, most appropriate. And we appreciate your time spent here. here, And thank you for joining us. Oh, no, I really appreciate you coming out here, Brian. And uh, God bless. Yeah, absolutely. And folks, this is a continuation of interviews. I'll keep doing them uh, up until primary day on March 5th. But until that time... This has been the Middle American.